Recovery Elevator, episode 84. And when you mix alcohol with depression, it's, it's never a good thing, although it seems like a great thing at the time. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, I've been sober for two years and one week. On today's podcast, we've got Elaine. She's 46 years old, married, and took her last drink 15 days ago. If you find the Recovery Elevator podcast helpful, and if you haven't done so yet, please do me a solid. Go to recoveryelevator.com forward slash survey and fill out the survey. It took my mom 28 seconds to finish the survey. I want to find out who's listening. On today's podcast, I want to talk about my lean buddy. Yep, my lean buddy and those feelings. I want to talk about feelings today. How fun is that? If you've been to a 12-step meeting or two, well, probably within your first meeting in the first 10 minutes, you're going to hear the words, drinking is but a symptom. What the hell does that mean? Yeah, I'm allergic to alcohol. When I drink, I can't stop. But also, there's a lot more to it. I've got these feelings, these emotions that I just want to make go away. Oh, about two years ago and one week, I had a really good way to do that. Actually, it was a shit way to do that, but I drank them away. I drank all my negative feelings, my thoughts, my emotions. I just said, peace out. I'm drinking you away. And when I say for a short time, I actually mean like half a decade and more. Probably from ages 21, 22 to 28 to 29, I effectively said, adios emotions. I'm done with you. Bring it on, Jose Cuervo. I thought I had figured out the ultimate life hack. Bad feelings, negative emotions, adios, I'm going to drink you away. However, what I know now, that is all borrowed time and those emotions. Where do they go? Well, I thought they were going to disappear for good, but they went back into the emotion tank. Little did I know the top would be popped off in the summer of 2014 and I had to face all those emotions. Doing so without the aid that had become my best friend in the past alcohol became extremely difficult. So I want to talk to you about my lean buddy. You guys have heard of Gary. He's my addiction who lies to me in my own voice. I respect you, Gary, but you're not my buddy. I want to talk to you about my lean buddy. It's a metaphorical buddy, but I want to make a reference to a lean buddy in a car. In this instance, I'm going to use my dog, Ben. Say, for example, Ben and I were riding in the back seat. Ben always rides in the back seat. Back right, in fact. He can look at me. He can look out the window. And when I roll down the window, he loves to dig his head out the window until that one time when I accidentally rolled his head up in the window. If you're a dog owner, you know what I'm talking about. We've all done that. So I'm in the back seat with Ben, my best friend, the standard poodle. We're driving in San Francisco. We come upon the windiest road in the world. Actually, that's no joke. I think the road with the most turns on it is in San Francisco. Our driver, we're going to call it 2050. We've got a driverless car at this point, is cruising. So what do human beings do naturally when this phenomenon occurs? Well, centrifugal force. We don't fight it. We just go the other way. We let the centrifugal force push us against the window unless we're playing that game Jello, where my brother kicked my ass, Mark Churchill, thank you very much, oh, for about 22 years in a row. Well, watch a dog in the backseat. The dog's not just going to go with the flow and get thrown against the window. The dog is going to lean into this negative feeling. Human beings, we do exactly the opposite. Negative feelings, peace, I'm out. So what I'm really working on at two years and one week of sobriety is to use my dog, watch him as an example, and I am going to be the lean buddy with these emotions. 
when these negative emotions arise, and I can tell you, life happens, they will come, instead of pressing my face against the window, trying to get as small and as skinny as possible, I'm going to lean into them. Yeah, that's right, emotions. I'm going to lean into them. I can't believe I just said this, but the word emotions reminded me of an emotions joke, and I'm going to tell that at the end of this podcast. Oh gosh, I can't believe I'm going to do this. So I've got five strategies that we can utilize to help us lean into our emotions. I'm the lean buddy this time, Ben. I got this. So rather than avoiding these feelings, my goal should be to move toward the emotion and lean into it. This can be said for even mild emotional discomfort such as boredom, confusion, or anticipation. When I ignore or minimize or drink that emotion away, no matter how small or insignificant it is, I forgive myself the opportunity to do something productive with these shit feelings because that's what they are. And just as practice makes perfect, or in my case, practice has never made anything perfect, but it gets me a little bit better at it, I guess, you can get better at leaning into your emotions. It will become a habit that you eventually will realize, hey, I've leaned in to the last seven negative emotions. I'm still alive. This isn't that bad. I felt it. I got through it to get to it. So strategy number one, when you feel that car turning, that negative emotion pressing up against you, just lean into it. Face first. Look it in the eye. The second strategy, when those negative emotions or feelings arrive, don't categorize that emotion as good or bad. So what you can do instead is just say, okay, these emotions are just here. They're not good. They're not bad. They are just here. I'm not feeling good ones. I'm not feeling bad ones. I'm just feeling whatever life is putting in front of me right now. For an example, guilt, we always associate this with being bad or a happy feeling. That's got to be a good emotion, right? Just recognize them for being there. Don't necessarily classify guilt as a bad emotion and say, I'm feeling guilty right now. I must have done something awful. Oh, maybe like drink last night when I said I was never going to drink again. Strategy number three seems pretty basic. Breathe and count to 10. Not short little wimpy breaths, but deep breaths. Your brain requires 20% of all the oxygen that comes in with every breath. If you take a short, shallow breath, you're going to get 20% of not much. Big breath, 20% of a lot of oxygen. Also, within the amount of time it takes me to take 10 breaths and count to 10 with each breath, I probably have already avoided disaster if I was going to act on that emotion. The next strategy is to recognize where these feelings come from. Now, with a lot of these feelings and negative emotions, you're going to have no idea where they come from, and you're probably going to pay somebody, sit in a chair, a lot of money to tell you where they come from. But believe it or not, there's a lot of feelings and emotion in my sobriety that I understand the root of where they come from. For example, last summer, my uncle passed away from cancer. My uncle and I were very close. I understand when I scroll through my phone and I type in Frank, I've got another friend named Frank, and his number pops up, I feel like shit. But just for that moment, and I know that feeling will pass. So maybe what I can do, Paul, do yourself a favor. How about you let go? Delete his number. Wow, we just made big time progress right there, Paul. But if you know somebody is going to be in a social situation that you don't want to be around that person, maybe just don't go. God, that's a big life hack right there. And the last strategy to effectively face these feelings is to know yourself, spy on yourself, almost watch yourself in a third person point of view. Be like that guy on the treadmill in the Seinfeld episode. Yeah, Jimmy likes you. I think his name was Jimmy. If you know Seinfeld, you know what I'm talking about. Pretend there's a film crew observing you for a nature film. 
you can hear the commentary about your own life. In this film starring you, you can imagine that the narrator will have some sort of an idea of what you're going to do next. For my life, I imagine it goes something like this. Alright, as you can see, Paul's at the mailbox, opening up a letter. This is from the RS, I believe. It's got to be some really bad news. Oh, it is bad news. It's really bad news. And usually right now, Paul is going to lose his shit. Wait a second. Now, what is he doing? It's something totally different. He didn't lose his shit. What is going on? I'm sorry. That was probably painful to hear, but that's how I imagine the nature show watching me. Before drinking, after drinking. But the point of that exercise is to recognize when I normally would run away from those feelings. Yeah, like I've mentioned before, life happens. Doesn't happen to me, it just happens. But emotionally recognizing when those feelings are present and altering our course of action, leaning into those actions. Okay, Recovery Elevator, or those of you who are still with me, because I imagine a lot of people when I said, hey guys, today we're going to talk about feelings and emotions, a lot of you guys just pieced right out. You're like, eh, I'll wait till next Monday's podcast. I'm good. If you're still with me, and I hope you are, we went deep there. So now let's hear from our interviewee, Elaine. Elaine, how are you? Hi, Paul. I'm good. How are you? I'm fantastic. Thanks for asking. Elaine, before we get any further, when was your last drink? It was 15 days ago. 15 days ago. Elaine, I love it because that <laughs> amount to me when I was going through my sick and tired of being sick and tired, the drinking phase of my life, mm. which hopefully is over, I could relate to that. I've heard podcasts. I read books of people that have been sober for years. And I'm like, man, I can't even get two days, three days. 15 days for some people is unrelatable. So I got to give you props for having the courage to come on this podcast. And it sounds like you're creating some accountability, right? Oh, th yeah. Thanks so much. Yeah. So 15 days, I think, is probably the longest I've been sober in maybe almost a decade. A decade. Wow. And, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it is pretty significant, even though 15 days doesn't sound like a long time to people. Uh, I, I have so much awe for people who are months and years into their sobriety journey because it, uh, it takes a lot to get there. Elaine, when I hear 15 days, you know, you emailed me and said, I'd like to share my story. It's not something where I say mm -hmm. 15 days, email me when you get 50 or, you know, get back to me when you get <laughs> yeah. a year of sobriety. I think that right. is amazing because 15 days to me, there was a time. In fact, there was many times where 15 days I, I was, was unattainable. So congratulations, mm -hmm. Elaine, on 15 Thank days. You. Yeah. And, and we're going to talk later about how you got to 15 days and that's not chump change that's a lot of time of sobriety but before we get there Elaine tell us a little a bit about yourself yeah where you're from maybe what you do for a living and what do you like to do for fun so I'm an army brat so or an air force brat excuse me so I've lived uh, in a number of cities across Canada I'm in my mid-40s I work freelance I'm very happily married to my husband who I've been together with him for 25 years we are happily child-free, so we have no, no children. Um, for fun, I practice archery. I'm a green belt in karate. I ride a motorcycle. And I'm an introvert, and I'm an atheist. Wow. Nice job. <laughs> that was a great answer to that question. <laughs> atheism? Thank you. <laughs> you probably knew the question was coming. Well, I am an avid listener of your podcast, so I did, have a, I did suspect that you would ask me that. So it probably goes like white belt, green belt, and black, right? I wish. No, <laughs> it goes well. I'm, I'm kidding, but what, what, is, what are the oh, what okay. are the colors go? 
um, in my dojo to go white, yellow, orange, green, blue, brown, and black. So I'm halfway. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, I, I really like karate. If anybody's looking for something that is kind of a mental activity while you're exercising and learning some skills, I do highly recommend it. You know, that's actually where I was going to go with the karate thing is a lot of people think it's just like all, you know, roundhouses and swift kicks and punches, but there's a lot of <laughs> yeah. mental part to it, right? You really have to be focused. And, and that's one of the reasons that I gravitated to karate, because you have to be very mindful while you're there, because whether you're sparring or you're doing some of the katas, which are the, the choreographed moves, you really have to be present and not have other things floating around your mind to, to do them well. And my school is very particular on form. So anytime that you mess up, you have to start from scratch again. So it's, it's fun. It can be frustrating though. You know, there are days where you're not feeling fantastic and you go and you're like, geez, you know, I wish I could nail that, but it's nice. It's fun. Yeah. I can understand the frustration. There's days where you just get punched in the face and that's not any fun. <laughs> Well, I got punched in the face also by a 12-year-old in class once, too. So there's a bruised ego. Elaine, that's a lose-lose situation right there because I'm pretty sure you could beat that kid up. But then you're going to answer to some parents and probably get kicked out of your dojo, return the green belt, and just no fun. (laughs) Well, funny enough, you know, my my instructors were saying, you know, hit him back. It's like he's 12. Like, sure, he's the same height as me, but he's 12. And I'm pretty sure his parents are in the waiting room thinking, if this middle-aged woman hits my child, like, there's going to be trouble. Oh, wow. Hilarious. Yeah. All right, Elaine, let's talk about the Recovery Elevator podcast title. When did you decide to first quit drinking? Yeah, that's a, that's a long road to first quit drinking. So I first thought I would quit drinking probably like five or six years ago. Um, and this is my first run at AA and, and serious sobriety. I've been thinking about quitting drinking for a long time. And as a lot of people can relate you know, you try to stop drinking and it doesn't work and, you know, you make it 24 hours. It's just like, you know what, it's, this isn't the right time. It's too stressful. It's whatever. But now it's just the time. Like I, I, there were a couple of different things in my life that happened that were kind of leading me down the sobriety path, like kind of nudging me that way. I noticed um, some behavioral things in myself and uh, things that I was doing in my life that were starting to concern me a bit. Uh, and then my husband came home one day after talking with a friend of his who he hadn't seen in a long time and said, you know, so-and-so's in AA and this has been his journey and this is his experience. And he, my husband was telling me about this. I realized that I had a lot of pre- preconceived notions about what AA is and they were completely wrong. And so I just one day found myself driving to a meeting like a couple days later and went to the meeting. And I kind of, I think that maybe on my way to the meeting, I was going to kind of check off, okay, I'm not an alcoholic, so I'm not like these people. Yeah, that's what I did my first AA meeting. I went and I walked out and said, I'm not an alcoholic, and then disaster was looming. But real quick, what were your pending thoughts on AA before you went? Well, I knew that it was a religious-based text, which as an atheist doesn't appeal to me. And I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure that I was an alcoholic because I thought the room would be filled with well, I wasn't sure that I was an alcoholic because I hadn't had a lot of that, that kind of rock bottom experience that a lot of people have. So I have no DUIs. I uh, wasn't kicked out of my job. I haven't had an accident. There's been no strange people in my bed. You know, like all those things that you kind of associate with rock bottom hadn't happened. So I was going in there thinking that I'm not an alcoholic because of all of these things. And when I got there, people's stories just really resonated with me. They, you know, they had had different journeys too their sobriety. 
but actually by the end of the meeting, you know, and I, I pass, like, I, I don't know, you're, you're familiar with AA, I don't know that everyone is, but, you know, you go around and you can pass on, on the subject matter if you don't want to talk about it. And because I was new, they were, you know, do you want to talk? I said, no, I'll pass. And at the end of the meeting, I, I said, you know, I am, my name is Elaine and I am an alcoholic because it was true. Like, I couldn't, you know, 45 minutes into that meeting, I could no longer escape the thought that I was an alcoholic because I absolutely was. I, I couldn't fool myself any longer. So this was like 15 days ago? Is that when you said you just kind of started with the AA? Yeah, I started 15 days ago. And at that first meeting, I I, I, I was clear that I was an alcoholic for sure. Whoa, okay. So you're an atheist. You went to your first meeting. And 45 minutes in the meeting, it got to you and you're like, you, you guys are good. You're good. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I am an alcoholic, damn it. You got me. You got me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was. You know, I... It's a very open group. You know, the, the conversations are, are really honest and uh, people really stand up to um, their demons, you know, to use a kind of a cliched word. And I just, and, you know, a lot of the people that are in, in that particular group, some of them are religious, some are not. But I do, the, the tone of the meeting wasn't religious, even though the, the big book is religious. Wow. I think that's amazing that 15 days ago you walked in and boom, an atheist, especially because a lot of people have that trepidation and it's almost like oh, a yeah. block that if you don't get rid of that block, gosh, sobriety might not come. And that's amazing. So what was it like day one, day two, day three? What happened day four or five and when you got your first <laughs> craving, which was probably right after you woke up day one? Oh, absolutely. And so 15 days ago, it was a Wednesday. It was the 31st of August. And the next day, my husband and I were leaving for his family's cottage. And so at the, co the cottage was a place that we always drank. And it was a long weekend. It was a Labor Day weekend. And obviously, we, we, we drank always on Labor Day weekends. And his family was going to be there. So, you know, it was my first day of not drinking. I was at the cottage during a long weekend with a house full of in-laws. So it was kind of a white-knuckle weekend. Yeah, I can imagine. What did the lake look different? Smell different? <laughs> um, life looked a little bit different during those first few days. You know, I, it felt like when we first got up there, I wasn't really sure what to do with myself. You know, you're on a beautiful lake, and you know we can we can go for walks and kayaks and swim, take the dog for a walk. But it just seemed like at that moment I realized that the cottage was a place that was almost an excuse to drink. Like when you're an alcoholic, almost everything is an excuse to drink, right? I mean, good days, bad days, the phone book days, lands on days, your yep. porch. Yeah. Like the phone book lands on your porch as, as one of my fellow AAers said, and it's like, Oh God, the phone book's here. Let's celebrate. <laughs> That's awesome. I've not heard that one yet. You know? Yeah. Yeah. That was um, Denise. One of my, my um, AA buddies said that, which I thought was, was so perfectly encapsulated all the reasons that we used to drink as, as alcoholics. Yeah, and could you think of something at that cottage on Labor Day weekend that you noticed that you didn't notice before? And it can this this can be positive, this can be negative. It can be like, honey, there's bluegills in this lake. I never knew that. Or it could be a negative thing, like you know, I feel very uncomfortable right now. But did you notice something that you didn't notice before? Oh yeah. So this, what really I was left with that weekend was how much I drank to take the edge off my the agitation with my in-laws. There we go. Yeah. And, and right there, I'm going to just ask you, how much did you drink to take the edge and the agitation away from your in-laws? When I was still drinking? Yeah. How much would you have consumed at this lake? Oh, gosh, yeah. I would have consumed, uh, over a period of four days, probably uh, two bottles of vodka and three bottles of wine and maybe a couple of beer in between. But I would have, I would have woken up at, you know, 
10 o'clock because we're at the cottage, right? You sleep in at the cottage. And yeah, had a late lunch and and probably started to drink shortly after that. And maybe even start to drink covertly, you know? So I would have a plastic glass that that was opaque so people couldn't see what I was drinking. Now, would you drink with other people or you just drink alone at lunch and dinner, things like that? Would you like, was it like communal or like the family was drinking? Uh, it was all of those things. So I would drink with my family at, or with my husband's family, my in-laws at dinner time. And, but I would also drink alone. And I, I, because I'm an introvert, I don't, I don't, well, not to say I don't like to go out very much, but you know, I, I, I like to spend a lot of time on my own and that's where I do a lot of writing and, and, um, do my work. So I was alone a lot by choice, but I would also drink a lot alone. So, you know, I, I drank both with people and, and on my own. Uh, it didn't really matter, frankly. Elaine, you mentioned before we started the recording that depression is something that you have struggled with. And Elaine, mm-hmm. you got 15 days of sobriety and I don't want to undermine that a bit. Congratulations. But I'm looking at the notes that I, that I've written is, you know, you're an atheist, an introvert, and and struggles with depression, that's a pretty big wildfire, you know, gasoline fire waiting to happen, but you did it. You made it through that weekend. I've got to say congratulations, because if you drink tomorrow, we can't take that time away from you. You did that time, so nice job on that. And talk to me about depression. So depression is something that I've lived with since my teens. And it was undiagnosed at that time, of course, because when you're a teenager, you're slightly crazy anyway, and I use crazy in, in a, as an affectionate term. And I'm allowed to say crazy because I have depression. Totally. So, yeah, so, you know, it, there were just a lot of things in my life at that time. Like, I had a really nice life. I had wonderful parents, and my home life was fantastic. And, I, you know, I went to a nice school. We were very middle class. But, it, you know, just it just really started then, and I don't really know why, but it's something that has never fully gone away. It's, it's had periods of remission, so I'll go years sometimes without an incident, and then I might go into a depression for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then be out of it again. But what I found is, as I was in my 40s, and because of my work situation as well, I was working um, for a company that wasn't a good fit for me, and that really caused a lot of stress, which caused a lot of drinking, a lot of rumination, and the depression just came back with a vengeance, and it was a really... I struggled with it on my own for about eight months before I actually asked for help. And yeah, it took another probably year before I started to get my bearings again and, and came out of it. So it was a really long haul this last time. And when you mix alcohol with depression, it's it's never a good thing, although it seems like a great thing at the time. Yeah. And what does it look like when you first get that feeling? You're like, uh-oh, that's, I'm depressed. What does it feel like? It feels like there's someone standing on my chest. So I start things start to... to feel really heavy. Everything is a lot of effort. Uh, it can be really difficult to decide if I should go left or the right at the top of the street when I'm driving to get groceries. Everything becomes really arduous. And I know during those times that there's something that, you know, something, the depression is kind of creeping back. It's like icy cold fingers on your shoulder. You can kind of feel it just around the corner. So I, I'm, I'm really happy that I have the awareness now to, to be able to detect what it's, it's imminent. And I can take precautions and then start to rearrange my life a bit to try to prevent it from getting any worse. Elaine, I'm not asking for listeners. I'm I'm asking for myself on this too. You know, sometimes it feels like I took a roundhouse from a brown belt to the side of my face. And, you know, I'm, I'm asking like, what, what does it look like to you? Because anxiety was a huge thing for me. And I could bear the mm-hmm. anxiety for about a week, two weeks, and then I would drink. 
And, you know, the anxiety, thank goodness, and with over two years of sobriety, it is gone. And, but some days I, I don't know if it's depression. I don't know if I, you know, if I, I like, like this is a true story. Like five nights ago, I had four pancakes at like 3 a.m. in the morning. Sober. Go figure. <laughs> the next day I felt like a train yeah. hit me, right? I, maybe I'm, uh, I'm gluten intolerant, but it's just something on my journey that I want to be cognizant of. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's very curious, and I appreciate you sharing that with me. And so, what does the drink do to your depression? A, when you take the drink, and then like the next day. When I take the drink, uh, drinks, many drinks, and when I'm depressed, it feels fantastic. And it's it, you know, you're two drinks in, and you feel like everything is okay. That you know, maybe even at that time, you're, you're not feeling 100, percent but everything's going to be okay. And you drink, I, I would drink more. So I was never great at moderation with drinking. So I would typically have a couple of cocktails, um, vodka is my alcohol of choice, or scotch. And then I would have some wine with dinner or, you know, uh, while making dinner with my husband, and then a couple of nightcaps. Yeah, so Elaine, I, I don't great. think anybody on this podcast has been good at moderation. So you're, you're okay there, <laughs> including myself. Thank you. Yeah, so you know, during during that during any one evening or any one day when I'm drinking, things seem okay. And then when I wake up the next day, of course, you feel terrible, right? So not only are you hungover or mildly hungover or even just like tired, I would be at that point, you know, recognizing that I had overindulged and it wasn't healthy for me for my depression. It certainly wasn't healthy for me physically. And then I would spend that the next entire day beating myself up over it. And that is such a vicious cycle because the depression gets worse, the anxiety gets worse, and then now my alcohol use is getting worse. So it just, it snowballs so quickly. Yeah, you've got a depressant on top of a depression, and then you've got the self-loathing yeah. just stirring the pot. Uh, that would be the stigma. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is brutal. Have you ever tried, and you know, we just said the word moderation, and it reminded me of this question. Have you tried in the past to moderate with plans? Like, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm not drinking before karate class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and like, have you ever stuck to those rules? I've never stuck with them, but I've certainly tried hitting all of them. So I would try only drinking on the weekends, and then I, that wouldn't work. So I would try only drinking after 4 p.m., or only drinking when I met with friends, only drinking at a special occasion, I tried so many ways to work around it and, you know, it probably lasts like three days and then I'm just, you know, right back at it. Yep. Uh, I've heard them all and yeah, they're, they're tough. You can do it for a couple of days, a week, a month maybe, but it all goes back to the same. And Elaine, and, and what have you learned about yourself in sobriety in these 15 days? Oh, I wasn't expecting that question. Uh, what have I learned about myself? Uh, probably that, wow, I'm a lot I probably learned that I'm weaker than I thought, but stronger than I thought in a way. So by weaker, I mean more vulnerable to alcohol than I was ready to admit or that I thought, but stronger in the way that it can be really hard to ask for help, whether it's uh, alcoholism or depression. And I just kind of went into that meeting. Like, I, you know, I, as we said before, I was kind of not entirely convinced that I was an alcoholic when I went into the meeting, but I was there in the parking lot and I'm like, I'm going in. Like, I don't know, like, I don't know what's is going to happen when I walk through those doors, but I'm going. Elaine, it sounds like what you're describing with the weak moment is, you know, that's the window when, you know, you're you're an atheist, but you have a window of time to get sober. And for me, that's when my higher power is present and that window will shut. It's only open for a short amount of time. But yeah, when I was just lying down on the mat, not getting back up, 
You know, that's like when you say to yourself, wow, I am so weak and beat to shit right now. I'm not going to get back up. Ironically, that's when the hope came for me. That's when I got sober. And it sounds like for you, that was 15 days ago. And what is your plan moving forward? I mean, you're 15 days in, in the bag. You're pretty much cured, right? <laughs> totally. Right. Absolutely. We're on the same page there, Elaine. Podcast over. <laughs> exactly. I'm done. I'm cured. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pull up a chair, Elaine. No, but seriously, what is, uh, what's your plan moving forward? My plan moving forward is to continue going to AA meetings. I find that I get a lot of strength from the other people that are in there. Their stories are different than mine, even though there's some similarities and they are not shy in sharing them. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that because there's something, there's a camaraderie that's built very quickly when you're that open with people and they're strangers. When I walked in there, they had never seen me before. And I came clean. It was my first meeting. I, you know, they thought maybe I had come from a different group or was visiting. and It was my first meeting. But nobody, nobody clammed up. Nobody was quieter or more reserved with what they were saying. I was, I was just part of the group. And um, I really value their honesty. And so that will always be kind of a, a go-to resource for me. But I, what I find is that alcoholism is kind of like depression in the toolkit sense. So a lot of the strategies that I use to support a depression or ease a depression come in really handy with, with alcoholism. So making sure I'm getting really good sleep, meditation, yeah, let's hear these. yoga, curious. mindfulness. There's just so many things that, that, that come into play with both those things. And I guess because I had built that up with, with depression, it was very quick for me to access those things as an alcoholic because I knew that they had helped me in one area of my life. So I, and they helped me in another as well. So I'm really happy and grateful for that too. Awesome. And Lane, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? I am ready. Lane, what was your worst memory from drinking? Probably the things that I don't remember due to blackout. I love that. Who answer. knows what those are? Yeah. <laughs> Who knows what those are? Like, I'm not really sure who I should be making amends to because I don't think that I should be making amends to anybody, which is totally foolish of me, I think. But, I, you know, honestly, there, there are times that I, that I don't remember. And blacking out is not a glamorous aspect of alcoholism, I can tell you that. Man, sometimes I wonder if I could tally up all the time that I've been blacked out. It could be like two and a half years. Seriously, I, I have no idea. Yeah. I don't know. No funny yeah, thing about that. It's, it's a, it's a really dangerous position to be in when you're blacking out. And I think if, if somebody is listening who is experiencing blackouts and are not seeking help, this is really a time um, where you're really vulnerable in a blackout. Personal safety-wise, your health. Like if you're experiencing blackouts, it's not going to get any better, and you, you really should go get help. Yeah, seriously, Elaine, I would. I can't say it yeah. any better than you just said it. And the more I go down this road of the podcast, more people I talk to, professionals, just normal people, I realize that, Normal drinkers, they don't black out. And I would always tell myself, you know, I'm 22, I should be blacking out nine days a week. Well, there's your first answer, Paul. There's only seven <laughs> days in the week, dummy. Yeah. yeah. So next question, Elaine. We've all heard of the aha moment. Have you ever had an oh shit moment indicating that you might not be able to control your drinking? So many along the way. Um, <laughs> oh, I've got a couple. <laughs> yeah, I've got, a, you know, I've got a couple of them for sure. I guess the last one before I started going to meetings was waking up from being asleep and I had been drinking until I went to bed. So I woke up at 3 a.m. And rather than going back to sleep, I went downstairs and I made myself a vodka tonic. 
So you could go back to bed, right? At 2 a.m. Well, yeah, I wasn't, well, I don't even know. You know, I I woke up and I had two drinks. I was like, what am I doing? Like, that was the first time I had ever done that. So that was a real sign to me that things were, as as if the other signs were bad enough, that um, things were were going downhill quickly. And And I was in the AAD that week, yeah. Yeah, I've done that. Be- I've done that before, and I justify it. Well, you know, I'm not going to go to sleep again. I'm not going to start my day at 2 a.m. You know, and I'm not going to sleep without booze, so I might as well just drink everything within my arm's radius. So, <laughs> totally. yeah. and now, uh, what's your favorite resource in recovery? Other alcoholics so far. Uh, your podcast, which is fantastic, and I, you know, I, I, I'm not saying that just because I'm on your podcast and you're a fabulous guy, but your podcast is hugely valuable and. I think it's a, a great compliment to meetings, especially when I can't get to meetings every day. Hearing other people's stories and your familiar voice is really invaluable. Yeah, well, thank you for saying that, Elaine. And I agree 100% with the other alcoholics. That's what this is right sure. now. This is not work for me or anything like that. This is me connecting with other alcoholics, which is a huge part of my recovery portfolio. And Elaine, in regards sure. to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Uh, you know, I'm only 15 days into it. So, so far, I think the best advice that I've ever received would be to stand up and take my 24-hour white chip at an AA meeting. So my third meeting was, was less a meeting than it, was, than it was a 30-year sobriety celebration for someone that was in a group. And I was nudged by the people around me as they were giving out the chips at the end of this meeting to go up to accept my chip because they were giving out chips for, you know, 24 hours, one month. There were 80 people in that room. And at that point, I think I was eight days into sobriety. And I just, I, you know, as an introvert, too, it just killed me to go up in front of 80 people to do anything. And I'm sitting at the back of the room. So I had to do the long walk down the hallway to pick up my chip. And I was astounded by uh, the support that I received. People were clapping. People were shaking my hand. And I not know these people at all. And the support in the room just made me realize that even though I'm not a, a conventional fit for AA, like it's a fantastic organization when you get the right group, and I will always lean on that. Absolutely, and I know the relatability is hard when you walk in and someone's got 30 years. That's why on mm-hmm. the podcast, I, I, I did some stats. I think it's like the average person is less than a year sober. It's like when you go on the karate dojo and you see Patrick Swayze in the movie Roadhouse and you say to yourself, I'm never going to be that good. That guy's incredible. I got nothing in common with that guy. Give me a white belt and let me punch some 12 year olds. <laughs> yeah. I think I'm joking. I'm just kidding. Gotta start somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I know you are. I know you are. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, Elaine, what parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are thinking about quitting drinking? Well, yeah, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in sobriety, but I do have a lot of experience in drinking and that journey to get uh, there. So I would say get help today because tomorrow things are going to change. You're probably going to wake up tomorrow not feeling great, and you're going to say, okay, today's going to be different. Today, I am not going to drink until 4 o'clock, or I will limit myself to two drinks or whatever. And maybe that's going to work for a little while, but it's not going to work long term. So don't delay and waste any more of your life. Just go get help today in whatever form that means for you. Solid gold advice right there. And Elaine, thanks for helping me out. Before we depart, I had no idea that you had a podcast. I actually get a lot of interview requests from podcasts, other podcasters, other authors. And if it's not applicable to the recovery elevator audience, or I feel like they're pushing a product or a book, it's not the best fit. But uh, with you, that, that was not it at all. You just wanted to create accountability and share your story. And so I'm more than happy to talk to you about the, it's the throttled podcast. This is about motorcycle stories, right? 
Yeah, so it's called Throttle Podcast, and I mentioned earlier that I'm a motorcycle rider, and I was really interested as I was meeting other riders over the past couple of years that I've been riding in their stories and where they've been, things they've encountered, the interesting personalities that they've met. And so I created a podcast more as an excuse to talk to other riders, but it's been fun, and it's, it's only been going for eight episodes now, but it's really just dedicated to sharing the stories of fellow motorcycle riders. And we just have a conversation, and it's just it's just that. It's just kind of like we're doing now. It's just a conversation about riding and about life. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun. I love it. Where can we find the podcast? It's on iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud, but if you go to throttlepodcast.com, you can find the links there. Nice. I uh, was in Craigslist today, and I saw Vespa. Um, can I join the biker yeah. game? Like, how does this work? biker gang yeah you can join the biker gang i don't know I <laughs> we're gonna have know. to haze you in though <laughs> yeah gotcha. yeah. yeah no you know what i i've interviewed a couple of people who ride scooters and i know a lot of motorcycle riders turn kind of you know turn their nose up at scooters listen if you're on two wheels and you've got like a motor somewhere on that bike then i consider that you're in the club thank so you welcome i'm getting Get my that best buy. yes yeah elaine and before we depart you got to give listeners your own customized you might be an alcoholic if line you might be an alcoholic if you are starting to think you might be an alcoholic, which sounds really obvious and rudimentary, but long before we actually recognize that we're alcoholics, those thoughts start to bubble, those little seeds. Years and years ago, you know, I was thinking, oh, am I drinking too much? And if you're thinking, are you drinking too much? You're probably drinking too much. Elaine, it's that simple. And to tell you the mm-hmm. truth, uh, that, that's a great one. It's that simple. But I was hoping for something like, you know, you might be an alcoholic if you punch a 12-year-old kid in the face at your karate class. <laughs> I was really hoping that well, was coming. Well, yeah. Never drinking karate. And the kid punched, the 12-year-old punched me. So Yeah, but you, you, know. Know, yeah. <laughs> you, you know, resentments cause us to drink. So you got to get that. Yeah, exactly. that was very, you know, I didn't resent him, but my ego was really bruised when I left that class. Oh, that's Absolutely. Amazing. Elaine, well, thank you so much for joining us. Keep moving forward in your sobriety and keep doing a podcast. That's awesome. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure to talk with you today. Now, I've got three life hacks for you before we get to our emotions joke. But before we do that, let's hear from Cafe RE. Before I got sober, I felt alone. It felt like I was the only one in the whole world who found it extremely difficult to stop drinking once I had started. With Cafe RE, I now know I'm not alone. In fact, there are so many people all around this world just like me. In Cafe RE, for $12 a month, I get access to a private, unsearchable Facebook group where I can connect with other like-minded individuals, meet with them face-to-face in several weekly live webinars and meetings, I can get paired with an accountability partner who has a similar sobriety date as mine, I can attend in-person meetups and attend exclusive sober trips to places like Costa Rica. If there's one thing I've learned in sobriety, it's that I can't do this alone. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code ELEVATOR for your first month free. Again, use the promo code ELEVATOR when signing up for your first month free. Life hack number one, you know that voice inside of our head that says, I always or I never, I always get picked last or I never get asked out. Change that phrase into just this one time. Man, just this one time in life, I got picked last. Or man, just this one time in life, Elizabeth Barons, my sophomore year of high school, didn't ask me out. Damn it. Because our unconscious mind will eventually begin to believe the phrases, I always, I never, instead of just one time. Life hack number two, replace I'm an idiot with I made a mistake. Ah, I'm such an idiot, forgot to lock the door at the office. Well, I've done that about 50 times, but the next time I do that, I want to replace it with, huh, I made a mistake. 
I forgot to lock the office door last night. Thank goodness we live in Bozeman, Montana, and it's a safe community. Life hack number three, take responsibility for your actions. That alone can get you sober. Take responsibility for your actions. Once I started to realize that I had something to do with my problems, that is when the rubber hit the road. Okay, and now time for the emotions joke. The person I've heard tell this joke numerous times, she's five foot nothing and always used an accent, so that's the only way I know how to tell it. Hello, my name is Javier, and I have an emotions party. So I ring my friends, and I say, hey, Tomas, I'm having an emotions party. Tomas says, oh yeah, when's that? I say, Tomas, it's Friday. But here's the thing, it's emotions party. You need to come dressed up as an emotion. Thomas says, an emotion? What the hell do you mean, an emotion? He says, I don't know, pick an emotion, a feeling, and come dressed up as it. Tomas says, okay, I see you Friday. So my name is Javier, and, and now it's Friday. I'm downstairs, I put chips and salsa and dip. And then I get more dip, I put that on the table, and I hear the doorbell ring, a ding-a-dong, a ding-a-dong. I run upstairs, open the door. I say, Tomas, que pasa, what's up, Tomas? And then I look at him and I say, Tomas, what the shit, man? You're dressed in all green. This is an emotions party. And Tomas says, Javier, I'm green with envy. And I look at Tomas and I say, Tomas, that's good. That's good. I love it. Tomas, come on in. I got chips and salsa and dip. And I got more dip, too, in case we were out of the first two things of dip. So Tomas and I were hanging out downstairs. And then ding-a-dong, ding-a-dong, the doorbell rings. I run up the stairs and I see Luisa. I say, Luisa, what's up? She says, nothing. How's the party? I say, it's good. We got dip. Lots and lots of dip. And then I look at Luisa and I say, Luisa, you're dressed in all red. This is not a Valentine party. She says, no, Javier, I'm red with passion. I say, damn, Luisa, that's good. That's good. That's good. Come on in, Luisa. So it's Luisa, Javier, that's me, and Tomas. We have chips and we have dip. Oh, yeah, we have extra dip in case the first two packages of dip run out. So we're hanging out, enjoying our emotions party. We are leaning into these emotions. We're talking about these emotions and when they come and things like that. And what to do when we don't want those emotions nearby. And then a ding-a-dong, a ding-a-dong. I knew it. My friend Ricardo was finally here at the party, so I run up the stairs. I open the door and my shit, Ricardo, you're naked and you have what appears to be a fruit on your private part. What is going on, Ricardo? This is a goddamn emotions party. Are you poking fun at me? Looks like you're poking something else besides fun at me or maybe both, Ricardo. I say, Ricardo, come on. This is an emotions party. Luisa is here. Tomas is here. We have dip. We have more dip than you can even think about. It would never run out. We have so much dip and chips and stuff like that. But Ricardo, what in the hell is going on? And where are your clothes? Ricardo looks at me. Javier, that's me. And he says, Javier, I know I'm not wearing clothes. And you're right, I'm naked. Except for this device on my private part. But I am an emotion, I promise you. At this time, I'm having trouble looking at my friend Ricardo because he's not wearing clothes. All I can think about is the delicious dip inside and the other two people that came dressed as the appropriate theme. But Ricardo, he says, no, 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 Javier, look at me. I am an emotion. You will like this. Just give me a chance. I say, okay, Ricardo, what could you possibly be? He says, Javier, 
this year on my Pepe, it's a pear, a fruit. Okay, I got you, but what, what does that mean? He says, Javier, I'm fucking despair, man. I look at him and I go, Ricardo. I look at him and I say, wow, Ricardo, this emotions party can now start. Not only did you lean into that emotion, you fucked it, man. Come on in. I got chips, salsa, and that I mentioned a dip. Yikes. That's all I got for you. And to the three people who are still listening at this moment, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, and before we depart, I'd like to congratulate John in Australia, who's got 18 months of sobriety. John, he's a sales manager for one of the most prestigious wineries in Australia. Man, if John can do it, so can you. Recovery elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this. Thank you.